At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sean Kizzy of Biomana Farms to talk about his experience with biointensive farming. Sean has an upstart one-acre mini farm called Biomana Farms in Warrington, North Carolina. On his farm, he grows using a combination of conventional and biointensive techniques, slowly moving toward a completely organic setup and is growing in all four seasons, with the majority of production coming during the typical growing season. He is planning to expand to three acres in the future and into other ventures to diversify, such as beekeeping, vermicomposting, and nursery growing. Sean is in the process of starting a CSA, has taken agricultural entrepreneurship classes at his local community college, and has secured, wait for it, this is epic, three local restaurants to buy his produce. Congratulations, by the way. Welcome to the show today, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, hey, I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? So I started, well, I officially named it Biomana Farm this year. And in the past, I have, I've done some growing for, um, or for like the local farmer's market, uh-huh. things like that. And Actually, about three years ago is when I took interest into doing more organic-style growing. Uh And from there and through all the research, I've decided that I really want to try and pursue an organic, uh, sustainable, pesticide-free growing farm because there's not very many of them around here. So, So I guess that's what I would say you know, sort of brought me to the point where I am now. Uh-huh. So you're kind of on the on the leading edge of organic farms in your area. Yeah, because 
in, in North Carolina, you know, we're, we're a, I guess you could say a stereotypical farming state, you know, we grow, yeah. you know, grow lots. It used to be tobacco in this area, but mostly it's soybeans and things of that nature. And you don't really see too many people growing produce. We do have a few produce farms, but nothing in the order of organic. Actually, I don't know of one in our entire county. If there's there's a local food movement that has been coming about in our county, and there was a place called uh, Warren Food Works that was um, bringing people's local grown stuff, produce, and meat. So that got me interested initially in trying to do something organic. Yeah. So, Sean, why did you name your farm? I'm always curious about that. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a funny answer. It's kind of Great. a lot. I'll try and keep it short. Actually, I named it Biomana Farms, you know, bio being life and mana, you know, spiritual food. So I sort of thought that to me sounded like a very marketable name for an organic farm. So mm-hmm. that's essentially the reason why I named it that. You know, no um, special meaning behind it. More for uh, marketing purposes, I guess. So, so that that's essentially where the name came from. Good, so. cool, cool. So, what are you growing on your farm currently? Uh, currently, although I said that I am growing in all four seasons, uh, currently the only thing I have growing is uh, Austrian field peas for cover for the spring. Um, I decided to take a break from growing when I took this agricultural entrepreneurship class. Mm -hmm. So I I took time to sort of explore the business end a little bit more. So I'm technically not growing any, you know, any production crops at the moment. So that's cool. And one of the things that your bio said, and you just said a moment ago, was that you grow through all four seasons. So I know, like, here in here in Phoenix, Arizona, that's pretty simple. Actually, the hardest time to grow here in Phoenix is July, August, and September. What kind of weather constraints do you have around growing there in North Carolina? In, you know, just like in Arizona, it gets very hot mm-hmm. uh, in those same months. So, but at the same time, you know, our climate, we have a fair amount of rain even in the summer. So you can pretty much grow your uh, typical crops during those months. I guess the the constraint would be uh, trying to get an early start on fall and winter crops because yeah. you usually want to start out in August. So there's a little bit of a challenge there in starting seed because I don't have a greenhouse. I start my seeds inside the house and then I bring them outside. So the, the, the constraint there for the fall and winter crops comes in that it's so hot in those months. Yeah. But I, I would say also, uh, you know, winter here, you know, we're in a temperate a temperate environment or climate, so it doesn't get super cold here, but it can get down to single digits here a few wow. days. So that pretty much limits what you can grow during the winter. But, you know, the if you go by the Farmer's Almanac, it'll tell you, like, uh, broccoli and and 
cauliflower can't be grown below 20 degrees, but I've found that that stuff will survive even in the teens for a few nights. And interestingly enough, I had kale and Brussels sprouts that made it through the winter. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, I think I I can attribute that, I think, to uh, to the actual growing method more than it may be the plant's ability to withstand the yeah. cold weather. Yeah. So that would be biointensive farming when you, you uh, mentioned the growing technique. So can you tell us about biointensive farming? Um, yeah, I can definitely do that. Um, I guess, you know, there's, for the most part, I've seen the biointensive techniques more for small-scale gardening. So what I'm trying to do is find a way to kind of, uh, you know, to scale it up a little bit. You know, with the actual biointensive technique, one of the big things is your plant spacing and also the depth at which you loosen the soil. Mm. So, so, for example, with the Brussels sprouts, I planted the Brussels sprouts at about 15 inches apart. And if you go by the Farmer's Almanac, they recommend, I'm not actually sure what the spacing is, but I'm sure it's a lot further apart than that. Yeah. And what, and it creates a bit of a microclimate that uh, helps to protect the plants from extreme temperatures. So that's one of the reasons I believe that the Brussels sprouts were able to survive because the ones that were on the edge of, edge of the beds, they had some issues, but the ones that were in the center of the bed mm. seemed to do all right. Yeah. So, and, you know, if, in a conventional uh, row type of farming or something like that, you, you don't get, you don't get, I don't, you know, you don't get those sort of advantages of a, a, a kind of a small microclimate there. So it, it's all exposed to the elements. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've found that here at the Urban Farm. We have, you know, like four rows of greens growing out in the front yard right now. So there's, you know, there's external forces that come in on this in the smaller spaces where you might not necessarily have that in larger spaces, right? Yeah, and uh, we are in the middle of a lot of open land. Uh-huh. So, so we're exposed to the elements. Uh, you know, there's no windbreaker, you know, mm. no trees to break any wind or anything like that. So um, I found that it, it really has been a, a big help, particularly in the winter and in the dog days of summer here, mm-hmm. particularly with watering. So. Cool. So how did you learn about biointensive farming? I didn't really have anybody to teach me or anything. It, I read John Jevons' book, who's... I think it's how to grow more vegetables is the title. Yeah, than you ever thought was possible. Um, yep. From there, I just I, I took interest in it initially just from researching on the internet about how to grow organically and and how to grow sustainably. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how I would say I got my interest in it, and I sort of taught myself. And that, you know, I've, I've done conventional gardening until then, so I sort of took what I knew from that and the general over, 
overall, uh, you know, logic behind biointensive growing uh-huh. and just sort of ran with it. And I found that uh, it's actually much easier to manage your your growth using the biointensive method because it seems like you put a lot of your labor up front and then the plants take care of themselves for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the part I love about working with nature is that if you put all the right pieces in place, then nature steps in. And that's really what you're doing in biointensive farming, right? Pretty much. I mean, there's, you know, I do companion planting. Mm -hmm. So that, in doing that, you're kind of uh, letting plant diversification kind of help you out a little bit in in certain aspects. So, yeah, it's definitely kind of letting, letting nature do its thing because, you know, even with uh, companion planting, if you think about if you're walking around in nature, you don't just see one <laughs> kind of plant around. Right. So, uh, I mean, you, you do to some certain extent, but, you know, you, you have a lot of diversity when you're walking around. Um, so the idea of it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why that's why that's, I call it permaculture, and that's uh-huh. why I study permaculture. Permaculture, I like to call the art and science of working with nature, and you know, it really, oh, yeah. it's it's about plugging into nature and seeing seeing what nature has to offer. So I completely get yeah. that. The the way that we have conventionally thought about growing is the sort of you know completely sanitize the growing area of all bugs. Right. And all nasty things, and, you know. With the biointensive uh, growing method, you're sort of inviting nature in and letting yeah. it help you out. Yeah. Cool. So, how long have you been farming? Technically, I would say two years. Okay. And before then, I would, you know, before then it was more of a hobby. Yeah. Um, and I made, you know, I made money at it even as a hobby because I used to go to the farmer's markets around here and sell. But I would say two years because that's when I really kind of considered it as something I would try to pursue, Yeah. you know, as a real source of income. Right. What were you doing for work before you uh, were farming? Um. I was serving tables. Yeah. So you were involved with <laughs> so, food, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I was involved in food, and you know, I just I was in I was in school and serving tables, so that was pretty much my career at that point. Well, hey, I I, I so, delivered yeah. in my earlier days. I delivered newspapers. I delivered pizzas. You know, we do what we do back then, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, the, the, yeah, I went to school for, for biology. So Uh the, the the idea of doing a farm just always sort of appealed to me, particularly, you know, the idea of having a, you know, having a greenhouse at some point is that, that sort of appeals to the, that sort of side of me to experiment and grow things and have things in a controlled environment to, Mm -hmm. you know, see if I do this particular thing to it, 
what will happen, you know, and right. observe it sort of thing. So. so what happened that you, so what happened either in your life or in your mind that you said, you know what, it's time for me to stop serving tables. It's time for me to grow food. What happened? I decided to move back home from ECU, from Greenville, North Carolina, where mm-hmm. I was in school. And we live we live here on a farm. We have a family farm here. And I just decided, you know, I wanted to get back into growing. So I started doing more and more research as to how I could do it and maybe turn it into a viable business model. Yeah. My family also has said, you know, we have all this land here that we lease to another farmer just to grow hay, and it would be nice to, you know, utilize it for some for some other purpose besides growing hay. I mean, there, you know, the idea of growing hay too, you're you're having to add uh, a, lot a lot of, of chemicals to yeah. the soil. Yeah, exactly. So, it's not sustainable the way that it's growing. Right. So, so that's pretty much if nice. the power to stay. What really kind of brought me to it was, you know, coming home and, you know, kind of just having sort of a realization, you know, was, yeah. you know, let's do something with this uh, land that we have least to other farmers for so long. Yeah. I have to say that's just beautiful. You're you're taking a family asset and you're growing it into something. Yeah, we we're starting uh, you know as mentioned in the bio, you know, it's 1 acre right now which uh you know, that's would be considered I guess a micro farm or a mini yeah. farm. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and, and I want to try and scale it out to the point where it's sustainable and I, and I can do most of the work mm-hmm. and maybe have some hired labor as well. But, you know, I'm trying to avoid a high level of mechanization. So I mean, I, we have a tractor here, a small one, uh-huh. but from, from a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, with the biointensive method, you don't it's need not it. really discouraged. Yeah, it's not really discouraged. It's just you don't really need it. Right. And, and a, a tractor in the growing environment just doesn't, it, it sounds so weird because we've used them for so long in farming, but it's really not conducive. It's not really a great growing environment. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's not, it's actually not conducive to growing great soil. So. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what challenges are you facing when converting from conventional to organic farming? Well, the probably, okay, so if I was to sort of think, you know, if I was someone who had no connections trying to get into organic farming, see, uh, my, my neighbors around here have chicken farm, have uh, chicken houses, so... I was able to get, you know, chicken manure. Nice. So that's something so that's something, you know, if you can find a source of manure, I think that's probably a really good, you know, it's a good source of carbon as well as with chicken manure you're getting a lot of nitrogen too. Right. Um it may not be 
available immediately. You know, bio, if the, its bioavailability is not there immediately. Sort, I mean, it is, but for the most part, you know, a lot of it's locked up in ammonia and stuff. Right. That's definitely a big step, I think, um, is if you can secure some sort of exterior source of manure or or composting material. Because mm-hmm. with the John Jevons method, you're growing like, I think 60, I think it's 60% of what you're growing is just going back into composting and building the soil. And I don't, I don't grow um, all of the different composting crops that he does. So I have to bring in, I have to bring inputs in to the farm. So um, I get a couple of dump truck loads of chicken manure every year and I get horse manure throughout the season. Mm -hmm. So, and I do my own composting as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So really, I guess the, the big thing is to concentrate on your soil. Yeah. That's, that would be my biggest thing. And, you know, you want to get the carbon content higher in your soil initially. Because that's usually what soil is, at least in this area where where I'm at, which has a high clay content. You know, you've got to add some carbon to the soil. Oh, yeah. So, the nutrients, getting nutrients into the soil doesn't seem to be quite as hard, you know, because. Right. You know, that a lot of times if it's, you know, fresh land that's never had anything grown on it except for grass, mm-hmm. then you have a lot of stuff there already in terms of, of your nutrients and your, you know, your all the little, you know, iron and all the, the micronutrients and everything. So, so, yeah, I would say building the soil. Yeah. Perfect. Definitely. Yeah, that's, and that's always our challenge in growing food at, at pretty much anywhere you're at is you know, growing healthy soil and, and then having access to those materials that you need, which is great for you. That, that, that's definitely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say having a manure source is definitely yeah. helpful. Yeah. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Okay. Um, well, I would say just this recent, just, this recent growing season, uh-huh. I had planted a lot of tomatoes, and I knew that I had planted too many tomato plants, even when I put them in the ground. But I went ahead and did it, mm-hmm. and and my thinking was, well, you know, I can just worry about finding buyers later, and then what happened? All the tomatoes started coming in at one time, yep, and and I was like, man, what am I going to do with all these tomatoes? And I remember going out there after I had spent, I don't know how long, out there washing them and um, placing them and staging them to make them look nice and going out there and had so many rotten tomatoes out there that I had to throw them to compost. And, mm. that real, and that really got me, that you know, seeing that, really pushed me to try and find some buyers very quickly. Right. So I secured three buyers pretty quickly in my local area because, you know, I have a very unique unique thing going on here. And when you say organic, especially around here, 
even though North Carolina is not really thought of as being like, you know, at least this area I wouldn't say is, is being health conscious, but there's something mysterious about it. So there's one uh, restaurant here that does, you know, I would consider a, a higher end restaurant. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I told him I had organic heirloom <laughs> tomatoes, he was like, please bring them here. Yeah. So, and there's a, there's an allure to local food. So, and also when I think even from the restaurant perspective, if they can, they need something and they can call you up and you can bring it to them like almost immediately. I mean, they want that too. So yeah, uh, I guess the learning experience, that I would try and pass on to somebody would be go ahead and secure buyers even before you have any product ready, particularly if it's something like that they may have some sort of excitement over. So, you know, like heirloom tomatoes, organic heirloom tomatoes. You know, if I had told him at the very beginning, hey, I'm going to grow organic heirloom tomatoes, he probably would have told me which varieties he wanted to Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a, so I have a farming background here in Phoenix. When I went back to college, I went back to college at 39 years old. And from the time I was 39 till about the time I was 44, so for about five years, uh, my part-time job while I went to college was growing food in my front and backyard that I took to two farmer's markets and three chefs. And I think one of the easiest things to do as a first step for a farmer is, uh, you know, find some local chefs, find out what they want, and then offer to grow it for them. And they will love you. So there's a tip for all you want to be farmers out there. Uh, If you uh, are looking for a method to get your product to market, Going into restaurants, finding chefs is a great way to do it. And you've found that, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I I would definitely say in getting started, because it's almost like uh, you have secured a steady stream of income Mm -hmm. at the very beginning. Even if it's a small amount of income, it's it's steady. It's income. You know. Yeah. So. And, you know, I found, you know, that they will pay retail prices for what you're selling them. Mm-hmm. If it comes directly, you know, from farm to table. So that that's that's another thing, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you consider your biggest success? My biggest success, I would say, definitely securing those restaurants yeah so currently i'm actually in working with one of those restaurants they also have a produce processing facility and i work there on mondays and i'm actually trying to get my gap certification Mm -hmm. um, to be able to supply them with certain certain things so but that's going to be more on a wholesale scale. So I would say those are probably my big, biggest successes so far with it. 
Yeah. So uh, let me just for clarity. Did I, I, I want to make sure I heard you right. You said that you are working at a vegetable processing facility for one of your restaurants. They, yes, they, they have an organization and the restaurant that they had is, is part of that yeah. organization. And they also have a, yeah, a produce processing facility where they apply local grown vegetables to the school systems around. Nice. So I just want to congratulate you because you've gone into a space and you're learning and now, you know, you're making friends and now you have another place to sell into. So that is, that's a great piece of work there. Congratulations. And, and that wasn't even something I was. I wasn't even looking to try to get get into that. That just happened to kind of fall in my lap. So that, that's there you go. You know, it's one of those things. You know, sometimes you get a freebie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, brilliant and yay. I mean, you know, it, when that happens to me, I know I'm on my right path. You know. Yeah, and I think there's like some sort of quote uh, about uh, you know. In, in, in order to, you know, be lucky, you have to put yourself in an environment to, to be lucky. If that yeah. Sense. Oh, no. It I makes... think that was like a, uh, think of a basketball coach that said that. Yeah. So, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. So what drives you? Okay. What drives me is sort of, I've always had interest in growing and, you know, I want to try and turn it into a viable business model. Mm-hmm. So, that, that drives me, and also the the idea of having an organic farm, you know, it's more, there's a lot of fulfillment I get from that. Yeah. I'm doing positive things, you know, for my immediate environment around me, as well as for uh, the community, I think, if, if I can get to that point, you know, because there's, there's, there's a lot of interest in organic food, but it's, you know, we don't have a Whole Foods or anything like that around here. So right. I'm, I'm trying to maybe have my small little niche market in in what I'm doing right here. So it's, it's exciting to me that I'm going to be doing something that people have interest in and there's not anything else like that around here. Yeah. So. Nice, nice. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Final piece of advice. I would go out there and try and find buyers before you start growing. That would be my biggest piece of advice to give that I wish I could have done earlier on because that's the hardest part. You can you can learn how to grow anything if you are patient enough and you're willing to put the time in. But you know you can grow the prettiest vegetables, but you gotta have somebody to buy them. Yeah. yeah, and you know I tell people this all the time that grow if you want to be a farmer, growing the food's only fifty percent of the process. The other fifty percent is picking it, packing it, marketing it, getting it to them. And so be prepared for that. So that fits right into yeah, I mean, that. It, yeah, definitely. With yeah, because I mean, you don't have buyers, then it's a, it's essentially a hobby. That's the way I see it. Yeah, it's not exactly. A, it's not a business. So a, a, a hobby with a nice full tummy. <laughs> so, 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Sean. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? I have a Facebook page. Okay. It's at www.facebook.com slash Farms. Okay. And I also have a website. Um, it is still a work in progress. I'm, Perfect. I'm the one that's building it, so it's coming along piecewise. It's www.biomanafarms.com. So I would say those two are Perfect. the best ways to reach me. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. You can also find the show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash biomana. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.